What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com, and I'm your host, Gordon Burkell, and today I'm going to be interviewing Kyle Gilman. Now, Kyle just got off Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, Kimmy versus the Reverend, which is one of the interactive choose-your-own-adventures that Netflix has been doing. It's the next attempt after Bandersnatch. And we sit down and he takes me through the process or the workflow and how they sort of assembled this utilizing what's called Branch Manager. Now, if you enjoy this podcast, you're going to love what I've been doing with Manhattan at a Workshop. We have a site called FilmmakerU.com. That's Filmmaker, the letter U.com, where we bring in the top creatives from around the world to discuss their approach to creating content. So this includes Martin Scorsese's sound designer, Eugene Garrity, the Mad Max Fury Road colorist, Eric Whip, as well as Brian Cates, who's won multiple Emmys for his work as an editor. You can go to filmmakeru.com and purchase the videos there. You can also audit some of the classes with a few short excerpts that we released, but check it out. It's filmmakeru.com. Now, with all that said, here's my interview with Kyle Gilman. So my first question is, when researching for this, I discovered that you've worked on a lot of comedian projects, and you've also directed a lot of comedy projects. And I'm wondering, how did you get involved with the comedy circle that you've been involved with? That's a really good question that I'm not sure. Uh, I guess it came from Dennis Leary's production company. They were coming off of Rescue Me, and they were looking for projects to produce, and they ended up self-producing a pilot for very little money and you know there was no network involved or no studio and they were looking for somebody cheap I think was really what it came down to and you know I was pretty young and didn't have a ton of experience I had no essentially no experience in television because I've been working with Hal Hartley most of the time and like doing jobs in independent film and their old editor Jeff Wolf who was the editor on like the ref he worked with them on a bunch of things and he recommended me because I was his assistant editor on an independent film and they just kept hiring me and that pilot didn't go anywhere and they hired me for another pilot that didn't get picked up. And then finally they hired me for the Marin pilot presentation, which was through a studio, but without a network. And so that was this tiny little production where, you know, they actually shot it in Mark's actual house. And I think they shot for two days and I barely got paid anything for it. But I really liked his podcast. And uh, that led to being hired on the show once that got picked up. And I'd, I had to go to Los Angeles to edit that for a few months a year. Actually, before that, also, um, I had been working with Christian Charles, who was Jerry Seinfeld's um, kind of production partner sometimes um smaller projects that Seinfeld did and they hired me through the editors guild website so you you never know where things are going to come from and uh Christian also independently recommended me to Dennis's um, production company so uh yeah it all kind of funneled in through that connection and once I started editing Marin that kind of led to a lot of other jobs well I was going to say you've worked on Marin you worked with Bobcat Goldwaith, Misfits and Monsters. And that's how I met Bobcat. Bobcat was a director on Marin. Yeah, Difficult People, uh, Jim Gaffigan's show. So I'm wondering, because comedians, one of the things in their, you know, if you listen to Marin's podcast or you listen to any of the comedic podcasts that the comedians do, a lot of it comes down to timing and, and rhythm in their delivery. So I'm wondering what you learned from all these incredible comedians about timing and pacing as an editor. 
Well, you know, it was really the reason I got into editing was my interest in comedy. I wanted to be like a writer, director, and, uh, you know, make my own comedies. And once I started making films in school, I really very quickly realized that the editing is where you make the joke. And that really strongly appealed to me. And the other parts of filmmaking appealed to me significantly less. So I pretty quickly gravitated towards editing because of that. And I would say that what I learned was from working with them is not so much like a direct thing. It's more like watching them over the years. I learn just from watching their shows or watching their performances. It's like there's no rules. Like I've learned that there's no thing that you can teach anybody other than like, you know, what's funny and you have to really feel that and you have to trust your instincts. And in the case of Robert Carlock and Tina Fey on Kimmy Schmidt, their rule is always make it as fast as you possibly can. <laughs> and that's not always true for everybody. Sometimes people want their jokes to breathe a little bit. And uh, it really depends on the material. And with something like Kimmy Schmidt, it's all about just increasing the pace as much as possible. And part of that is just because if you don't like this joke, we got another one coming. So uh, let's hurry up and get to that one. I was going to say you also, because you sort of mentioned going to school, you went to Harvard. Did you ever try to get on the Harvard Lampoon or? Yeah, yeah. That was definitely my plan when I got into Harvard. I got really into the the idea of you get on the Lampoon, get a job on The Simpsons or on Saturday Night Live. And, uh, you know, that's your life uh, writing comedies. And then I tried to join and I discovered that I, I'm just not a comedy writer. I just, it wasn't something I enjoyed. And what I wrote was not something that the Lampoon people enjoyed. So I, I gave up on that pretty quickly. I'm glad that I had that very early learning opportunity where I've never aspired since then to uh, to try to get a job writing comedy. I just know it's not for me. Now, I want to know, because talking about Kimmy versus the Reverend, can you walk me through the workflow for a project like this on Netflix. And in my research, the branch manager, um, like I saw a few clips of it, but I don't know much about that. So I wonder if you could sort of enlighten us as to how a choose your own adventure would work. So we had the distinct advantage of not being first. Um, I talked with the assistant editor of Bandersnatch and they were building branch manager while they were editing Bandersnatch. And so they were kind of improvising all of their systems on that project. And we were just able to build off of what they had come up with and the things they had learned. And we had a fully functioning branch manager, which they're still Netflix continues to improve. And they improved it throughout our editorial process. But the great thing was when they wrote the script, they actually put it into branch manager. So branch manager would allow you to play a script. And so you could read the pages and then at the end of a page, you would get a choice and you make that choice and then it loads up the next part of the script, depending on the choice you've made. And so you're actually able to play the game before you've shot anything. So then once they start shooting stuff, for the most part, it's just like editing anything. And sometimes you're putting together scenes that are very similar to other scenes <laughs> Because the interactive thing, like, you know, you're just going to have a different line or something based on a choice that was made. And there was, I think, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but something like 160 pages of script. It may more or less, depending on whether, like, you know, there's this scene where you get a phone tree and you end up listening to this taco snake sing a song for like 
10 minutes or something. And that wasn't actually in the script. So that added a lot of time. And there were things like that, that, you know, it ended up being about three hours of material that was edited in the final product. But as I started putting it together, I would start to find little things that are not like a normal assembly of a TV show or a movie where there would be two different versions of a joke. And they do this all the time, just as a natural comedy making process. Like they throw out a bunch of alts and in general, we only get to use one. And I started thinking, well, okay. And I remember this specifically with at the beginning where they start to plan the bachelorette party and they're looking at a seating chart. And one version of just this throwaway line at the beginning, Jacqueline says, oh, you've got me seated next to Buckley, who's her son. And of course, she's seated next to Buckley. But and then they had an alt version, which was, is it racist to put all the penguins at, at the same table? And I was thinking about it. And I, and I said, well, that joke doesn't play unless you've chosen the fancy dress, because Kimmy mentions that she's invited four penguins if you choose the fancy dress. And so that was just an immediate like, OK. I'm going to make two different versions of this bachelorette scene. And one of them will start with the joke where you've heard the penguin set up. And the other one will just be the Buckley line. If you've chosen the fancy dress, I mean, the fun dress, it's hard to keep track of everything. (laughs) (laughs) Well, how many timelines did you have? Well, so the way that the structure of the actual editing, like the project in Avid, it's all broken down into segments. And that's based on the way branch manager works. Everything in branch manager is a segment. And so we were given a branch manager file that had all of the segment numbers already and all of the script pages built into it. We just based our segments off of that. And then as the process went along, we would add or subtract depending on how the story was changing. So each segment would have its own sequence in Avid. And so if there was a like this bachelorette thing where there's just one line that's different, that means you have to maintain these two separate segments that have the entire rest of the scene in them. So every time you make a change in a later part of the scene, you have to make sure that you remember to reflect that in the other sequence. And then periodically that all just gets exported as an H.264 file. Each segment then gets loaded into Branch Manager so you can actually play the thing in Branch Manager and make the decisions. It's a good point, making the decisions and testing this. So one of the things, you know, if you're cutting a show or a movie, you can show it to someone and they can give you feedback. But in this situation, you know, it's not like you can ask your wife to watch it or ask a friend to watch it because they might go down a particular path and give you feedback on that. But there's so many variables or so many options. So how do you test this to make sure your story's working, your arc's working, the characters are developing, that type of thing? Well, the testing was... You know, I did ask my wife to watch it. And if you are being really methodical about it, you can actually get Branch Manager to export a list of all of the choices that were made when you were watching it. So you could really drill down on like what and how the experience went for any individual person. But I think it's more like the writers really trust their own instincts after this many years of making television. They know what they like. They know what uh, is good. Like you never show an episode of TV to anybody before you you finish it. I mean, this is significantly more complicated, but in the end, it was really just all of us watching it over and over and over again and making revisions. And we would just sit down some days and say, okay, we're going to alternate making the choice when a choice point comes up. And 
we'll see what path that leads us down and see what notes we come up with. Now, you know, you've done this, you've gotten through this huge task. When you reached out to the Bandersnatch assistants, they probably gave you a lot of information and things that they sort of encountered. So what would you share with the next group of editors who are taking on uh, Choose Your Own Adventures that you learned in this process? I think creatively, the number one thing is really just like experiment with the format because you've got something that is not available to anyone else. And I think our big thing was rewatches, being able to show different versions of things, put in different jokes. If there was a disagreement over which version of a joke was better or which take was better. By the end, we were just saying, all right, we'll put it in the rewatch. So because Netflix is keeping track of how many times you've actually seen the show, we could say, okay, the second time around, it's going to be different. I don't think that was something that Bandersnatch had done, although they are a little bit secretive about how many endings there are and things like that and what they're actually tracking. And they were much more complex than us, I think. Their storytelling had a lot more loops and twists to it. Although the big complication of Kimmy Schmidt was that there's an A story, a B story, and a C story. And, you know, you're constantly cutting back and forth between them. And decisions you've made, you know, a long time ago are affecting things later on down the line, like especially with Jacqueline. You know, one choice that you make affects her entire story, whether you end up with the writer or with the wardrobe assistant. And then technically, one of the big things we learned from Bandersnatch was the way that you have to organize things to mix and to do color correct. They figured out that you make these big, long reels because it's such a hassle to load up every single sequence and also to make sure that you have a smooth transition from one segment to the next. So they came up with the system of like an A reel, which is, if you watched it, is just one version of... The story and it's kind of representative of all the different kinds of scenes that are in the show but it represents one full playthrough and then we made a b-reel which is whenever possible the opposite choice is made from that we then made a c-reel and i think that was it and the c-reel is incomprehensible if you were to watch it down it's like you know repeating scenes it's uh, jumping and skipping between things but we always put in the segment that leads into it and the segment that leads out of it which didn't need to be mixed and color corrected again but just so you had the context of each segment and so then the people who are finishing it were able to see uh just kind of treat it like a movie for most of the mix and color correct a lot of times for whatever reason when i watched it i kept hitting dead ends where they would rewind me so were there things that you guys did to try and keep people from getting into dead ends or was it? Oh no, dead ends I think are the one of the best things about the experience. And they always had this idea of a, a rewind montage was the way they put it in the script. And I remember being extremely frustrated when I would watch Bandersnatch when I would make a decision that was had been decided was wrong. At that point, you stopped enjoying the process until you were able to make new decisions. And you would spend a lot of time getting kind of like eased back in to the show and I wanted to make sure that we made that process as quick as possible and when I got the script there was this concept of like respawning segments so you would have a dead end you would get your rewind montage and then it would bring you to a new segment and I started running into a technical limitation of the interactive system which is that any given segment has to be at least 30 seconds long for buffering purposes because the Netflix system is, it's all built around never having to wait 
after you make a decision because it's loading up the next two choices. If there are more than two choices, it's actually using some sort of algorithm to figure out which one of the two might be loaded up next. I think it gets smarter as more people play it. Don't quote me on that. (laughs) (laughs) Something like that. And so I didn't want those respawns to have to actually be 30 seconds long. And so I figured out that you can just tack that on to the end of the dead end. And then at that point, you can make the process of getting back into the story as short or as long as you want it to be. You either get to make a choice again, or we're just going to push you back into the so-called correct choice that moves the story along. Now, I have two more questions for you. The first is, which is your favorite ending? Because when I got to the ending, I played with it a lot. And I'm just wondering which one you you enjoyed uh, working on the most. Like of the wedding endings or of the... It's the one where um, you have to choose whether or not she kills the reverend. Oh, I see. Yeah, I mean, we only considered the weddings to be the ending because the show doesn't end until you get to a wedding. It's always pushing you in that direction but of course there are all these false endings and dead ends but they're really more like detours because we uh, we're constantly redirecting you but of the reverend deaths the uh the exploding him with the rocket launcher that was one that it's extremely unusual to have this happen where tina and robert just like basically didn't have any notes um, from the beginning of editing that segment it just came together really great and it's just really funny and, you know, I think later on with the visual effects, it was a little tricky to figure out, like, you know, how big is the explosion and all that stuff. But that's less my field. So now my last question, and I like to ask this of everyone in the interview, it's what's your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch? Oh, guilty pleasure. Um, I don't know. That implies I should feel bad about anything I like. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the way I explain it, because some people have said that, and the way I always explain it is like, you know, if it's a Sunday and you're flipping around TV and the movie's on... You're like, you know what? I'll just watch whatever's left of this. Right, <laughs> and you sort right. of sit and enjoy it, um, uh, even though it's not your favorite film. I don't know if I can think of anything. I, I don't flip around on TV anymore. Uh, <laughs> well, you know what? What comedians do you like? Because my wife's a comedy nerd. So <laughs> what, what comedians are you into if you've been working with them? I love Mulaney. Um, Marin, uh, Mark Marin still, I can't listen to the podcast as much as I used to just because I spent so much time with his voice in my head, but his last special was incredible. Oh, I loved his last special. It was really good. Yeah. And really weirdly well-timed. Yeah. Uh, and Mike Birbiglia. Yeah, he's really good. Well, I was going to say for Mark Marin in, uh, oh, what's that wrestling show he's in? Glow. Yeah, it was perfectly written for him. Yeah. <laughs> It's basically like, just do your podcast. Yes. <laughs> just first 10 minutes of your podcast is your character. I remember he had somebody from Glow on his podcast and they were like, there was no question once we saw you that you were perfect for this. But uh, I don't know about movies that I would just like hang out and watch because now that everything is a choice to watch, I don't have cable or broadcast TV anymore. I just, everything is streaming. It's all something I actively choose to watch. Yeah. <laughs> There's so much good stuff that I want to watch that rewatching stuff, it feels like I'm wasting my time. Like I, I could be watching these five other things that came out this week. It's so crazy now. You know, we're going to run out of new shows pretty soon. Yeah. And it's been interesting that my wife was telling me that there was some news article that I can't remember what store it was, but it was like one of, a big distributor of film equipment and audio equipment. And they were selling out of podcast mics <laughs> at the start of COVID-19. They're like, everyone's making a podcast. Yeah. 
Probably somebody like B&H. Yeah, so we're going to have a slew of podcasts. Yeah, we'll have animation and, and podcasts. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much for letting me interview. Yeah, no problem. This was great. Well, I'll let you know when it's done. You can have a listen. Definitely. Yes, thank you. Enjoy your night. You too. Thanks. All right. So that was my interview with Kyle. I'd like to thank Kyle Gilman for allowing me to interview him. I'd like to thank Netflix for setting this up. I'd also like to thank Niraj Patel for cutting this episode. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.